The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We have a tough act to follow today. Our last episode on Anna Karenina was hugely popular. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this. One is that the last show is like a lead-in. If you're a struggling little show, or in this case, a struggling little episode, you might want to follow the Super Bowl. You'll get a lot of people who didn't bother to change the channel. Maybe that'll happen today. We'll be in a Anna Karenina afterglow. The other way is to be intimidated, like comics who didn't want to follow Richard Pryor or Robin Williams or Chris Rock. When a comedian tears down the house, what can you do? No one wants to go on stage. I heard a great story about Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin once. One night, Frank went up to Dean and said, You know what, Dean? You may wonder why I'm the headliner and you are my opening act. Let me explain. You don't know how show business works. You come out and start with three lousy little numbers, and you don't get to the good stuff until later. That's no good. When you do it that way, you take too long to get the audience on your side. Now, when I come out, bam, come fly with me. Bam, fly me to the moon. Bam, New York, New York. Three hits in a row. And the audience is on my side. That's why I'm the headliner. And Dean said... Well, yeah, I do my best, Frank. And Frank said, that's not good enough, Dean. That's why I'm the star and you're not. And so they went out and did their shows. And afterwards, Frank came back into the dressing room and Dean said, so Frank, how'd it go tonight? And Frank said, well, they were a little flat, actually. Not such a great audience. And Dean said, well, what about those first three numbers you did? Didn't those get the audience going on your side? And Frank said, no, not really. Funny enough, usually those three kill. Tonight, there's no response. And Dean said, oh, interesting. And then later, someone told Frank, hey, why did you start your show with Come Fly With Me, Fly Me to the Moon, and New York, New York? Didn't you know that Dean Martin ended his show with those three numbers? I have no idea if that's true. I love the story. It's showbiz, the Rat Pack. So here I am doing a little showbiz myself. It feels that way, at least. I mean, there's an audience. It's not teaching. There aren't any classrooms this big. It's like broadcasting, talking into a microphone. It's entertainment. And I think about things like lead-ins. Who do you get to follow Anna Karenina? The Scarlet Letter didn't want the job. Huck Finn's still in the green room, refusing to come out. But here's our man who shows up. Here's the guy who's not afraid of anyone. Here's the guy who, in fact, made a cameo last time. We mentioned him in the Anna Karenina episode, as we often do. Our guest today is, of course, William Shakespeare, the bard. The bard. The man who outraces us all, as Virginia Woolf put it. We're continuing our August month with a look at... Shakespeare's Greatest Sonnets, a way to spend our Thursdays here in this month of pandemic, still in the pandemic here in the United States. Shakespeare himself was likely writing these sonnets during the plague as London's theaters shut down and he had time on his hands and thoughts in his brain. Fourteen lines written in ink, etched in stone, and by stone I mean something permanent and enduring whether you want to call that the immortality of anthologies and reprints and kids who memorize poems and 
poetry fans passing these around and sharing them. Lovers copying them out. Greeting cards, packages, (laughs) wrapping paper. Or whether you want to call etched in stone the collective unconscious of our civilized world. It's not Shakespeare's My Way or Fly Me to the Moon or Strangers in the Night. He had plays for those. That'd be a better comparison, but it doesn't matter. Shakespeare isn't afraid of following anybody. Not even Tolstoy, who hated Shakespeare. Okay, Sonnet 29. We've got a couple of versions for you today. Here's one by Ian McKellen. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble death heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope Featured like him, like him, with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope. Who thought I must enjoy content at least. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day, rising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Hmm, so good. But what does it mean? Why is it so good? We'll be diving into all of that today on the... Wait, wait. <laughs> I almost triggered the theme song. I'm not ready. We'll be diving into all of that with Shakespeare's Sonnet 29. Today, I'm late. Still not ready. Ah, here we go. Come fly with us today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Sonnet 29. The win in disgrace. Sonnet. Another home run first line. Just a killer. It's often printed with a comma between when and in. When in disgrace. When, comma, in disgrace. That's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Well, whenever I say something like that, someone will email to tell me that actually it's right. Actually, Jack. But the first folio of 1609 doesn't have a comma there. I checked. Of course, the first folio also says diff grace, <laughs> and it doesn't have an apostrophe in the word mens, and it capitalizes fortune. But hey, no comma. I don't want a comma there after when. It feels too English teachery to put one there. You don't need a pause. When in disgrace with, no, when in disgrace. That's the state of mind here. It all flows together. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. Man, that line is so good. So good. Hmm. The intern who wrote this script put seven O's in that. So thank you, intern. Speaking of interns, we got an email asking about interns. We'll hear that one later today. Let's take our break now. 
so we can come back with our listener emails. Then we will get straight. Did I ever tell you this story about my son? Before I use this phrase, I probably have once, maybe twice. He was little. He was maybe about two or three years old. His older brother had dropped his nap, but the little guy still needed one in the afternoon. And so the older brother and I would do stuff during that nap. That was our chance to go for a walk or a drive or watch something that the little one couldn't watch or play a game that the little guy would wreck. You know, a board game with pieces that he would stuff in his mouth or kick the board over or something. Not because he wanted to spoil our time, but because he was a little toddler who didn't know any better, but also because he wanted to spoil our time. Because he was a little toddler who didn't know any better. Me, 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 me. Pay attention to me. Here I am. He used to say, I told you about the Beatles album I played for those two every night in their bedroom, bedtime with the Beatles, and he used to hear a Beatles song in the car. This little guy. And he'd recognize it, recognize the tune, and he'd say to his brother, Hey! It's my bedtime song. And his older brother would say, It's our bedtime song. (laughs) I mean, they were in the same room. The light goes out. They listen to the same music. They fall asleep together. And the little one would just look at him and say, It's my bedtime song. That's how they are. Little egocentric. They're still figuring out where they end and the world begins. So... He's in his high chair, and I'm feeding him, and the older one starts talking about what we're going to do during the little guy's nap. Hey, Dad, can we go to the zoo? Can we go to the movies? And I'm worried now, because if the little one hears he's going to miss out, it might kill the whole deal. If the little guy refuses to take his nap, we are all in for a nightmare. So I tell the older one to be quiet. Ixnay on the Anning play. And the little one announces, I'm going to take a nap, and when I wake up, I'm going straight to cheesecake. (laughs) Straight to cheesecake. You jokers can do whatever you want. I've got my perfect day planned out. Good strong nap, and then straight to cheesecake. So here we go. We'll take a quick break, check in with our listeners, and then straight to cheesecake. And in this case, our cheesecake is Mr. William Shakespeare and his sonnet 29. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Llama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come on, fly with me. <sighs> it's so good. Thank you, Frank. Okay, first email. Kathleen, subject, Nathaniel Hawthorne, period. And I was ready for this email. I had just been thinking about Hawthorne. After Anna Karenina, I thought, are we running out of our greatest hits? Are we running out of the big ones? Our most popular episodes have been Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Proust, George Eliot. Are we running out of those superstars? And I thought, well, we haven't done Hawthorne yet, or Huck Finn, or Henry James. So no, I don't think we're running out. And hey, we can always revisit some of the greatest hits and sprinkle in some new ones. My list has hundreds of topics on it. Requested by listeners, nearly all of them. Okay. Kathleen says, Dear Jack, I'm relatively new to the podcast, but an old-timer when it comes to reading. Having suffered through 12 years of Catholic education, all girls, I follow the rules. Start at the beginning and work your way to the end. So I started with the Greeks and made my way up to the Adam and Eve episode. Then all hell broke loose with me following my curiosity and jumping around the episodes. I'm breaking all the nuns' rules and loving every minute of it. (laughs) Which is so funny, Kathleen, because that's probably around the time I started jumping around, too. I was not raised by nuns, but I guess I want to break their rules anyway. Back to the email. To the point, I noticed that you haven't devoted an episode to Nathaniel Hawthorne, so I am putting in a good word for him. He wrote a story entitled The Birthmark, which, because of its length, can't be read in an episode, but I found it exciting to read because it raised thoughts about other stories addressing hubris, risk, and, sometimes, science. Adam and Eve and the Tree of Knowledge, poor old Charles Bovary, Sisyphus, and Dr. Frankenstein. I made those connections because of your approach to literature as a living story. Hmm... Very interesting, Kathleen. I think I've touched on all of those in different episodes. We've had a Madame Bovary episode. Probably talked a little about Charles in that one. We've had a Camus episode. I think we talked about Sisyphus a little in that one. Then we had a Frankenstein episode, our Frank Capra episode. We talked a little about Dr. Frankenstein in that one. But, you know, an episode on hubris, hubris in literature would be an interesting one. So... Back to the email. Thank you, Kathleen. Kathleen says, You have encouraged me to read books I may not have read and to enjoy a once-dormant excitement in literature. Please keep going. Please keep going. Your podcast pal, Kathleen. P.S. My favorites so far have been the Hebrew Bible, Alice Monroe, and Homer. Kathleen, thank you for your email. I can see you have been jumping around indeed. I will definitely do some Hawthorne. I have a little... PTSD from my wife's dissertation, which was on Hawthorne, James, and Wharton, and which I read approximately one million times. That's an estimate, of course, but probably a low one. 
I would read it and try to figure it out, and sometimes I would suggest a sentence, like, oh, oh, that's what you mean. Okay, well, can you say it this way? And I'd craft a sentence. And then the next time, the next draft, I'd read it again, the whole thing, and I'd run across the sentence I had suggested, which I was happy to see had made it into the draft. And it was the only sentence I understood. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there's my old friend, the little life preserver. I know what this one means. And everything else in here is way over my head. But along the way, I read a lot of Hawthorne. And I like him. He's kind of prickly to read. He's thorny, but he's great. I'm with you. I like the birthmark, and I like the artist of the beautiful and Wakefield. Oh, there's a lot of good stories. Minister's Black Veil, Young Goodman Brown. Of course, The Scarlet Letter is kind of a landmark in literature. We'll get to some Hawthorne soon. So thank you for your email. I'm glad to hear you're making connections as you read, and I love hearing that your once dormant excitement in literature has been reawakened. Those nuns and their rules did not win. Not this time, anyway. Next up, an email from James. Dear Jack, your podcast has saved me during the quarantine. I'm either lazy or depressed or scared, and have spent most of the past five months in bed listening to old episodes of Howard Stern. A month ago, I found your show and switched over to listening to that while laying, fly, lying. Parentheses, I have a PhD and will never know the difference. Close parentheses. In a fetal position. Your enthusiasm inspired me to get up and start writing again for the first time after my debut short story collection was published. So, you're just amazing at this. Thanks. On to my subject. I think it was during the Swift episode I listened to recently where you talked about a producer, Bob, who resigned, and at other times you'll be reading and then chuckle quietly and make a reference to intern writing in Jack Wilson Studios. I would love to hear more about the process. Where you all work before COVID, after COVID, who the interns are, who the producers are, etc. This is what makes Howard Stern so magical. He makes every person in the building, from janitors to salespeople to engineers, as interesting as himself and the radio crew. In this way, his show is literature. Anyway, I understand you probably want to retain some mystery to the process of how you create these transcendent podcasts, but I, for one, would be thrilled to hear more behind the scenes. Listening to Anna Karenina now, and you just chuckled and lamented, oh dear, what intern wrote that, lol. Book wrecks, Stoner, John Williams, or Ambushing, Ambushing the Void by James McAdams. Can you link me to your Nabokov episode? You quote his magisterial lectures on literature a lot, but I can't seem to find one actually about him or Lolita, Pale Fire, Penin, etc. Please don't stop making these podcasts. Peace and love, Ringo Starr quote. James. Dear James, wow, thank you for the email. You hit all my buttons, including the little Ringo Starr reference there. More behind the scenes? Well, I struggle with that a little bit. I'll confess that just now, when I read the behind the scenes, when I read your quote, your request for behind the scenes things, I actually sneezed. An intern ran over here with a tissue, and I was tempted to leave it in. It was so appropriate. For a behind-the-scenes look, but I'll do what I can. I struggle with that a little bit, as you've alluded to. I'm no Howard Stern, alas. And also, I'm a little worried my interns are going to turn on me someday. I'm nice to them, but my producer can be a bit of a tyrant. I'd rather not give them a platform. Here's what happens. I start talking about them, giving them credit, naming their names, and soon they start to think, hey, I'm bigger than Jack. 
Why is he the one driving the Italian sports car? Why is he the one with his name on the studio gates? Why does he get to wear the tuxedo during the broadcast? Why does he eat dark chocolate with caramel and sea salt while the rest of us just sit here eating ho-hos and laughing at his jokes? Well, I can't have that, James. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. So I have to keep a tight lid on what I can reveal. I'll take all the credit for everything good and pass along the blame for all the mistakes. It's the only way to lead. But thank you for your email. I'd say there are two Nabokov episodes. Neither is really Nabokov, per se. In our episode with Jim Shepard, he chose Lolita as one of his favorite books. And in our episode with Joshua Ferris, he wanted to talk about Nabokov and Freud. Those are probably the closest we've come to a full episode. Nabokov is definitely on our list. I was going to do him a while ago, and I... And I backed out. That's another big topic. We're not going to run out anytime soon. And finally, an email from Tomas. Subject, greetings from Slovakia. Dear Jack, I have recently stumbled upon your podcast and it has quickly become my favorite. You are doing such a good job. It has humor, insight, scope, authenticity, and true love for literature. That is very rare. I'm really glad I still have many episodes to listen to. There are so many great writers and themes you have covered so far. I'm also doing a podcast on literature in Slovakia. Started a few months ago with only four episodes by now, and yours is a huge source of inspiration. So I just wanted to thank you for doing this and wish you all the best luck with this project. It has given me a lot of joy. All the best, Tomas. Well, Tomas, thank you for the very kind email. I appreciate it very much. I don't really ever get tired of hearing that I'm doing a good job. Isn't that funny? You'd think I would. Maybe I have a deficit from my childhood where I didn't really grow up in the kind of place where one was told that. I was much more likely to be told that if something went well that I had gotten lucky. My dad was the kind of guy who sat in the stands watching me play baseball, sitting there with all the other parents, and the other dads would compliment him, compliment me, and he would say, my dad would say that I got lucky. Lucky catch. Oh, wow, he lucked out on that one. Once, a parent said, Boy, Jack did a nice job driving that ball to the opposite field. And my dad responded, I think he was just lucky to get the bat on the ball. It might be a little technical, but baseball fans will know what I mean there. So, when you say, Tomas, when you say a sentence as simple as, You are doing such a good job, I get a little pain in my heart. My eyes get a little moist just a bit, and I think, you hear that, Mom? Do you hear that, Dad? Tomas thinks I'm doing a good job. And I can hear my dad chuckle and say, well, let me talk to Tomas. Dear Tomas, Jack's getting lucky. And my mom, well, that's a whole different story. My dad is less complicated than my mom. Eh, you got lucky. But in a way, he's right, in one very big way. I am lucky to have such wonderful listeners. Thank you very much for your email, Tomas, and I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying the show. I can think of nothing better than to spread a little joy around this crazy world, and I'm honored and flattered that you've ascribed that to me. Good luck with your podcast, and I hope you find a group of listeners who are as good as mine. It makes all the difference. Okay, enough. It's time, people. 
It's time for our cheesecake. It's time for the Sinatra of literature, unless he's the Pavarotti, unless he's the Elvis, unless he's the Prince and the Michael Jackson and the Jay-Z, unless he's the Duke Ellington, unless he's all those wrapped up into one. He's the Beyonce of literature. He's William Shakespeare. Sonnet 29, after this. All the angels cheer because we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day Just say the words and we'll beat the birds Down to Acapulco Bay It is perfect A flying honeymoon They say, come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away Okay, let's hear our second rendition of Sonnet 29. This is Patterson Joseph. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I, all alone, beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark, at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. So, Sonnet 29 is still in our fair youth section of the sonnets. These are addressed to a young man who's handsome and self-centered and admired by the public. Shakespeare urges him to have children in the first 17 sonnets. He addresses poems to him, in the first 126, until the fair youth is replaced by the dark lady. But as our listener pointed out, and as I pointed out last time, the biographical connections to Shakespeare are thin, as are the details about the addressee. Sometime we'll do an episode on the fair youth. I have some theories about who he really was. There are a lot of theories out there. I have mine. Also about the dark lady some speculative theories about her as well, but we can save that for a different episode. Today, let's just look at the text. It's a speaker, a poet addressing someone. If you'd like to think of this as Shakespeare addressing his lover or his platonic friend or a wife or a lover or a patron or a protege, it's all fine with me. Male or female, it's up to you. Choose your gender. The lines here don't say one way or the other, and I think we all kind of project ourselves into the poem anyway. Can I empathize with the poem? Yes. But only if I can imagine my own love. So if I'm gay, I'll think of it as homosexual love. If I love an older woman, there you go. It's about someone who loves an older woman. If I were a woman in love with a younger man or an older man or a younger woman or an older woman, same thing. You can make it work for you without being tied to any one particular specific form of love. It's fun to think of Shakespeare the person because we like to know who the devil wrote the poem and what he or she was thinking when they wrote it. But the theme here is sort of universal. So, let's talk about the theme. In a nutshell, it's this. 
when things go bad, I hate myself, and then I think of you, and I wouldn't change a thing. That's it. That's the condensed version. Once again, it's pretty simple, pretty basic, and as we saw with Sonnet 18, people like that about the poem. And the critics say it's one of the most popular, even though it's one of the most basic. And it's one of the most popular, and it's also one of the most basic. And what they leave out is the likely conclusion. It's one of the most popular because it's one of the most basic. Listen to popular music sometime. Not critically acclaimed music, necessarily. Popular music. What are the themes in those lyrics? Boy loves girl. That's enough for a song, people. Or this. Girl gets hurt, bounces back. Or, I'm getting old, you make me feel young again. Doesn't need to get trickier than that. It doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be. I'm anxious about not having health insurance, but your love makes me feel like I can make it through several more months, almost as if I could afford insurance or have moved to another country where it's provided to me for free. We don't need. I was born with a birthmark that everyone thought was cancer, and I've always felt like it was a stigma. But you make me feel good about having one, too. <laughs> the scenario, the conceit, the dilemma, the story of the poem, at least of a sonnet, doesn't need to be complicated. We don't need the sweep of decades and 20 characters. It's not a novel. It's okay to be basic. Reduce life to its core, its strongest emotions, distilled and purified, and what do we have? You make me feel safe. You make me feel good. You hurt me, I'm scared, I'm jealous, I'm angry, I'm in love. Those are seven possible sonnets right there. Now I can hear the objection. But those have been written a million times. They're cliches, Jack. No, they're not cliches. Cliches are if you say, okay, I'm in love. I'll write a sonnet about that. And then you say, your face lights up just like the stars and moon. I feel as good as nightingales in June. That's lazy. That's bad. That's the cliche. Clichés are tripping all over themselves. That's being a bad poet. But I think you're beautiful and I'm in love with you as your theme, not your lines, not your metaphors, not your conceits, but your theme. That's just being a good human being. So our topic is simple. The execution is everything. Let's take a look at Shakespeare's execution here. First line. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. Another home run for Shakespeare. Disgrace. Not just bad luck, but all the way to disgrace. Disgrace. What a great word. Shame. Fallen out of favor. A bad reputation. Dishonor. Lack of esteem. In this definition, which is key from the 1580s, state of being out of favor of one in a powerful or exalted position. There's a falling here in this word, disgrace. This is a proud person who had reason to be proud, but the world beat him down. There's a narrative here embedded in this word. I was on top. The world turned and everyone's against me now. Disgrace also has a religious air to it, like even God hates you now. You really blew it. <laughs> You're out of God's good graces. Fortune means chance or fate or just the gods of the universe, men's eyes, reputation. Those two together kind of cover it all, right? The world kicked me. Everyone hates me. You know that if you put yourself out there, 
if you're, you know what this is like. If you're a quiet person living at home, you might never feel this. But as soon as you start up a little podcast, say, you know what it's like. People kick you around. It hurts. The world conspires against you sometimes. And sometimes it's people. And it feels like everyone. And that's just a humble little podcaster. If you're in showbiz in a big time way, Frank Sinatra knew about this. He was disgraced. And I don't mean in the sense of embarrassing scandal or committed a sinful action. I mean, he was on top, and then he fell, and he fell hard, and he had to claw his way back. And so when he sings a song like That's Life, you really feel like he really feels it. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. Did you hear that emotion in his voice? Shot down in May. He knew this. It happened to Frank. In the 1940s, he was the biggest star in pop music. The Bobby Soxers loved him. He was a Hollywood star. By the end of the 1940s, he was all but washed up. The public's taste in music had shifted. His mob ties were a source of disenchantment with the public. He had an affair with Ava Gardner that led to a divorce. That was unpopular. Frank was on the outs. People were giddy. They were his rivals, his enemies. They were getting their kicks, stomping on his dream. And then he got the part in From Here to Eternity in 1953, which he had to beg for. And he showed a new side, a vulnerable side. He showed he could play a feisty, doomed character. Showed he could act. He won an Oscar. And he signed a new contract with Capitol Records. He made up-tempo songs with Nelson Riddle. He got more jazz and swing instead of the old crooner ballads. And at the same time, he was injecting his life into his songs. He was now the tender tough guy. The guy who stayed up to the wee still hours of the morning. The guy who could sing about love with some bitterness. He was an adult singing to adults. He made 16 records like this, and he was suddenly launched into the Pantheon. That's Frank. How about Shakespeare? Well, we don't have the same level of biographical detail, of course, but we know a few things. His marriage seems to have been rocky at best. We know he was criticized in the theater world, too. In 1592, a dramatist named Robert Greene attacked Shakespeare in his deathbed diary, a groat's worth of wit. <laughs> if you have wit, if you have a groat's worth of wit, you'd want to brag about it too, people. Okay, Green went to university, and he was talking to his fellow university-educated poets that there was someone who didn't go to university, but who nevertheless purported to be a playwright. Now, you're probably with me and thinking, well, Green sounds like a snob, so let's discount what he's saying. But it doesn't feel that way when you're the one being bullied. If someone says you're uneducated, you don't feel honored that they obviously felt some kind of jealousy or threat or whatever it was that you were doing. You feel like, hey, maybe I'm not good enough, or maybe everyone else thinks that. And in this case, England has a long streak of snobbery by people who are aristocrats or nobles or whatever those fops call themselves. And the Ox Oxbridge set is just going to Oxbridge their way to the grave until the end of time, I suppose. So Green says, quote, there is an upstart crow beautified with our feathers 
that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and, being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country. End quote. Apparently, Shakespeare had been in a play of Green's as an actor, and Green thought, well, this guy is pompous, conceited. How dare this uneducated actor write blank verse like the rest of us? Was Shakespeare conceited? We don't really know. One can imagine him scoffing at lines here and there <laughs> as an actor. This? Really? This is the best you can do? I could write this line backwards and in my sleep and make it miles better. So Paul McCartney went to watch Ringo Starr recording his album. He was just standing there. He was just there to be an observer. And suddenly he just blurted out, all right, give me those cans, meaning the headphones. And he jumped on the mic and started singing the harmony. You can see Paul do that with George, too, on the Beatles anthology. George starts playing a song he's written. And Paul starts doing a little counterpoint to it, one of those harmonies that only Paul can do. It's as melodious as the melody, if not more so. It makes everything better. And he says to George, can't you hear that? Can't you hear it? You can imagine Shakespeare as an actor, knowing that he can write these lines, but he's got to be in the plays that these established university pedigreed playwrights are in. He's not yet established as a playwright himself, so he's sitting there with these lines of poetry, leaping into his mind, lighting up the world like sheets of lightning. And he's reciting the dull lines and saying, My God, Green, you're a university-educated playwright. Didn't this occur to you? Or this? Or this? Can't you hear that? And Green probably said, Well, why don't you stick to acting, Will? Well, sure. Okay. I know. I'm just an actor. But what about this line? Wouldn't it be better if I said this and this and this? Don't you hear it, Green? Don't you hear this melody, George? Don't you hear this part of the song, too? Mozart is like that in the movie Amadeus. It's such a great scene. Salieri. No, 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 Salieri. Don't you hear this music? Here's how it should be. It's not what your limited brain can invent. It's what my genius brain just has. It just knows. It's a gift. And Green probably told Shakespeare, why don't you go write a play, hot shot? And so Shakespeare did, and Green was then like, oh, geez, <laughs> that is good. But I can't give him the satisfaction of knowing that. I can't say that. So Green writes this thing in his book, A Groat's Worth of Wit, about how Shakespeare thinks he's so great. Let's all turn against him. Let's say he's uneducated, and let's say he's so pompous and conceited that we hate him. And Shakespeare down on his luck, hey, Maybe no one will produce his plays after that. Doesn't matter how good you are if people hate you. Maybe he's stuck there in the plague wondering if he's ever going to be a playwright. Powerful people might just shrug and say, nah, you're the guy nobody likes. And Shakespeare says, oh, what agony. Sinatra didn't suddenly become a bad singer in the 40s. He fell out of favor for other reasons. The public turned on him. Maybe that's what happened to Shakespeare, too, or maybe it felt that way. We don't know. We don't know if Green's lines had this effect on him. We also don't know if there were a dozen Greens or a hundred, if this was the widespread view of 
Shakespeare in the theater world at that time. Maybe there were there was lots of talk behind his back. But there was, we know, kind of a public apology by Green's publisher, who said that he regretted Green's attack on Shakespeare. And he said, in effect, I'll paraphrase, I've seen Shakespeare, and for my part, I've seen his demeanor, and I think he's just as civil as anyone, and many people say he's great to deal with. Upright is the word that the publisher uses. Many people say he's upright, which argues his honesty. And besides, the man writes like a dream. That's the paraphrase. The publisher, Henry Chettle, was much nicer to Shakespeare than the fellow writer, Robert Greene. Okay, so that's one possibility for the disgrace Shakespeare felt when he was writing Sonnet 29. It doesn't really matter. We've all been there, haven't we? That moment when you know everyone around you doesn't like you, they've turned, you were super popular, and suddenly, or you were at least doing okay, <laughs> and suddenly someone comes along with a pin headed directly for your balloon. And maybe the puncture is beyond your control. Maybe you get sick just when it's time to be healthy. Ah, maybe that happens. Maybe it's not men's eyes. Maybe it's fortune that has attacked you. My whole life was geared toward basketball from the time I could walk until my senior year of high school. My father was a coach and my grandfather, and they had me ready to go. They didn't push, but they didn't need to. I loved playing. It was my favorite sport and probably my favorite thing to do. And I was ready. My senior year, that was the pinnacle. That's all I wanted was to be a high school basketball star. And then the opening tip of the first game of my senior year, I broke my foot. First play of the first game of what was supposed to be my peak year. That's fortune knocking me down. You no doubt have a story like this too. And disgrace in men's eyes? Well, when hasn't that been the case for me? Jack Wilson has taken some shots, people. I'm sure you have as well. We know what it's like, don't we? So, line two. I all alone beweep my outcast state. Poor Shakespeare. He's got to nurse those wounds. Leave me alone. I'm just going to drink my beer and go to bed. I'm just going to eat this ice cream and feel sorry for myself. Hey, I don't want to recover yet. That's what Shakespeare's saying here. Don't try to help. It's just me all alone. That's how it is. Beweep. I'm just going to beweep my outcast state. Beweep is such a good word. I guessed that Shakespeare made it up, but then I looked it up and nope, it looks like Old English had it first. Beweep. Past tense is bewept. Wow, what a great word. I have bewept plenty of things in my life, and I have bewept my life plenty of times. I all alone beweep. I all alone is a really nice phrase, too. Ordinarily, I'm careful about inversions or strange syntax because I don't like messing around with that just to make the lines scan. It jolts me out of the world, world of the poem and makes me think of the poet sitting there with the tip of the pen in his or her mouth, thinking hard, not coming up with much, having to crank words into the wrong place in order to make things work and sound okay. I don't like that. But here, I don't mind it so much. It's not really out of place. And it's easy to follow. 
says exactly what it wants to. I all alone beweep my outcast state. Outcast is great. Cast out, like disgraced. There's more narrative here. This is not just a guy who was born miserable. This is not saying I've always been puny. No one's ever recognized me. Or I was born a meager sinner, a piece of nothing. This is, hey, I was on top, baby. <laughs> not a direct quote. <laughs> I don't have Jake actually saying that. I'm telling you what I'm imagining. This, this is what I imagine to be in Shakespeare's mind. Maybe it's just in my mind as I read it. I was on top, baby. I had it all. And then I was cast out and outcast. Disgraced. State. It's another great, great word here. Keep in mind that word state. We'll hear it again twice more. Some say that's a flaw. Oh. He used the same word three times, and two of them are end rhymes. Some say that's a flaw. I say it's genius. I say the critics are flawed and lack genius. Do we disagree? Well, you decide, dear listener. You decide if you think Shakespeare's the genius or his critics. I'll stick with my choice. So, state here can be a state as in position, like my outcast state, my position is that of being an outcast. Here's the level I'm at right now. But there's a hint of state, like a nation, too. That's the key as we move along. Next line. And troubled deaf heaven with my bootless cries. That's line number three. He's saying, I scream at the sky. I rage against the wind. I'm furious about what's happened to me. I was on top, baby. And now I'm down here, kicked around like a dog. Heaven doesn't care. It doesn't even hear me. It's deaf. It's deaf. And my cries are bootless. We don't really say bootless, at least not in America. But it means useless, fruitless. Shakespeare used it a bunch. Does nothing. That's what bootless means. My cries to deaf heaven do nothing. And look upon myself and curse my fate. That's pretty clear. I've been knocked down by life and and or people talking about me. I'm by myself and miserable. I scream to the heavens, but they don't help. I'm wallowing in pain and examining myself and cursing what's happened to me. I'm blaming myself. I'm looking at myself and not liking what I see. Remember, we have a volta, a turn. That's how these work. But we don't get it yet. We get four more lines of misery first. Shakespeare turns to jealousy. Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed. Hear this? Shakespeare's saying, after I rage against fate and hate myself and wallow in that pain for a while, I start thinking about the others whom I'd rather be. Oh, that guy over there, he's got friends. He's got hope. He's got promise. He looks great. He seems so happy. Wish I was him. Next two lines continue this. Desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I most enjoy contented least. Ah, oh, Shakespeare's saying, I used to love being me, me the actor, me the playwright, me the young lover, me the young person, me the man on the make, the guy on the rise, me, me, me. It used to be great being me. I was on top, baby. 
And now I look at this guy and that guy and that guy over there and that other guy over there, and they're succeeding at all the things I used to succeed at. They're laughing with their friends. I don't have friends. They're doing what I used to do. But they seem to be doing it better than me now. I suck. (laughs) That's kind of the first eight lines in a nutshell, actually. I suck. (laughs) I I should be hired to write one of those Shakespeare in a nutshell books. I can make Shakespeare very easy. Sonnet 29, first eight lines. I suck. But maybe not. (laughs) That's the whole sonnet. I suck. But maybe not. Because here's the turn. Oh, and we could do this again, couldn't we? We can have fun with our turn. This is even better. We did this last time. But it works even better here. Let's hear from our friends, the Beatles. All that darkness and misery and driving gloom. Eight minutes of it on side one of Abbey Road. This is the last song on side one. And then the cutoff. The album side is over. And you flip the record and hear... Yes. Yes! We've made a turn. Things can be happy again. There's some redemption here. Here comes the sun. Yes, the sun. Here comes the sun. I said, it's all right. In a long, cold, lonely winter. Riding high in April, shot down in May. And in our poem, in our Sonnet 29, the poem says, Yet. You flip the record and hear, Yet. <laughs> hear the turn in there, that one word? Yet. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising. There's a little crack of sunlight in that, almost. He says, I can't despise myself. I can't quite bring myself to do it. There's an almost here. Because in the next line, haply I think on thee. And then my state. Haply is by chance. Just happen to do it. Not happily, which would be too saccharine. Happily I think on thee. Haply. But it's kind of there too. Haply reminds us of happy or happily. Haply means I got a lucky break. It was a good piece of luck. By chance, it just happened, but I was glad that it did. And also in that line, state, state again. It's the second time it's used as a rhyme. Who cares? It's Shakespeare. Deal with it. And here we have a state, melancholy, a state of mind, like a happy person in exile who's returning to favor. So here's the three lines. Actually, here's the four lines that start our turn. Yet in these thoughts... Myself almost despising, haply I think on thee and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth sings hymns at heaven's gate. Oh, who cares if heaven is deaf to my cries? I think of you and my heart lifts anyway. And then, guess what happens? My state, my feeling, my melancholy turns into a bird that can soar to heaven. And look what happens now. Look what happens now. It's not a cry from the sullen earth. 
which I was doing before, and heaven was deaf. This damn bird goes straight to heaven and sings hymns at heaven's gate. Ha ha, heaven. Try to ignore that. No one will care if you do try. No one will give you credit for ignoring me now. Deaf heaven. Even heaven probably smiles. Reluctantly, maybe, but it will. Oh, there's that little bird again. Hello, lark. Well, sing if you want. We admire your enthusiasm. I see Shakespeare's back. Shakespeare's saying, who cares if everyone is against me? I'm doubling down, baby. I'm coming back. Make way for Sinatra. He's going to win the Oscar and record 16 albums. Damn it. Here comes the sun. Here comes the lark. Ready to sing a hymn from Heaven's Gate. If that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will, people. And now we get our couplet. Remember that Shakespeare always sticks the landing on these, at least in the best of his sonnets. We have four lines of misery, four lines of jealousy, four lines of saying, hey, I think of you and it's not so bad. Here comes the sun. My heart rises like a lark. It sings like a bird knocking on the doors of heaven. And then the final two lines are, for thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings. Get it? Thinking about your love is better than all that pride and success and glory. I have a memory of you, which I can keep forever and which is a treasure. I'll read it again so you can hear the final couplet in its full effect. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. State. He snuck it in there again. State. State like melancholy, but state is like a nation here. I'd rather be me with my memory of you than a freaking king. I'd rather have this little memory of you than have all the riches and riches have all the riches and treasures of a kingdom. Who am I going to be jealous of now? No one. No one. Not the man with his art or that man with his scope. Not the playwrights who get good reviews or who are university educated or who have friends. Here comes the sun, baby. I found it in my memory of you. I'm not jealous of anyone. I'm happy to be me. Whoa. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to William Shakespeare and his Sonnet 29 for putting a little lark in my life today. Get up there and sing, you stupid bird. <laughs> I need the energy. My thanks to my emailers, too, and to the Podglomerate Network, of which we are a member. Learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com. We're also a member of LitHub Radio now, which should get rolling soon. I'll have more about that shortly. As soon as I learn more, I'll share it with you all. And of course, and as always, as always, thanks to my listeners, to you. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, a king, and a podcaster. And I've, you've been there through it all, as I've done all those things. Please do subscribe and rate and review the show. And if you don't have time to do that today, put it on your list for tomorrow. That's fine as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.